Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delva Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly. I'm also a senior fellow at AEI. Our friend Yulia Zhoja is out today. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Black Sea to the Baltic Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Galina Tinchenko, um, the editor of Medusa. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Galina, it's a great pleasure to, to welcome you to the, to the podcast. And I suspect that many of our listeners will be familiar with your work and with, with your news outlet you run. But for the, those of us who might be less familiar, yep. maybe it might be worth just explaining very briefly what Medusa is, uh, who your audience is, where you're based, and how Medusa uh, has become the media organization that it is today. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me here, for inviting me. Uh, I'm very proud to take part uh, in this podcast. Speaking about Medusa, we are eight years old. And we were established at 2014. Previously, I was editor-in-chief of the most popular Russian news outlet called Lenta.ru. But in 2014, after Crimea annexation and first stage of uh, Russian invasion to Ukraine, I was fired by the owner of our media holding. He literally said... I realize that you are a great editor, but I have no cards to play with Kremlin. And they ordered me to fire you. And he fired me just in a second. And uh, it was a very tragic moment, but it was uh, the moment of glory because 77 of 84 journalists of Lentaru uh, resigned in the protest of my firing. So uh, after three days of crying, <laughs> we gathered with my deputies and we decided that we have very tiny chance to start from the scratch, to make our own media, our own principles and our own rules. And in 2014, we realized that Kremlin would not allow us to work from inside Russia. So we decided to move our activities in Latvia and we established an entity in Latvia. And we moved to Riga. There were 14 of us. We started Medusa from the scratch. It was media of general interest. And actually, we thought that we uh, would be small media, maybe niche media, but of general interest, it was some kind of minimum uh, survival kit for uh, Russian readers. But we didn't succeed. Now we are the biggest uh, media outlet among so-called Russian market. Unfortunately, Russian media market doesn't exist anymore, but still we are number one, and now we are covering all news agenda, and our main topic is the war. And uh, we have reporters uh, in Ukraine, and we still have freelancers and contributor writers uh, working from the ground uh, from inside Russia. And we, um, first, one year ago, we were labeled as a foreign agent, and it means uh, that we should mark mandatory we should mark every piece of our content 
with a special uh, um, ad about uh, uh, recognizing us uh, as a foreign agent. And second, we lost all our advertisers and all our revenue. And uh, when the war started, we were blocked in Russia. But we, it seems to me we solved this problem because still we have more than 15 million users per month in Russia. And we're broadcasting from all major platforms, despite of blocking even Facebook in Russia. What's the business model if you have no advertisement? <laughs> you know, our business model was ruined twice. First of all, uh, we were pioneers in branded content and native advertising, and it covered up to 80% of our budget. And uh, when we um, were labeled as a foreign agent, we lost all our advertisers because most of them were Russian divisions of international companies and nobody of them wanted to have problems with Kremlin and with Russian authorities. So in a week after we were labeled as a foreign agent, we lost all our advertisers' revenue. So we call for help for our readers. Actually, uh, previously, I was the biggest enemy of subscription models or like and pay models. I used to say that free information is like a fresh air and I just do not want to purchase or to sell fresh air to the people. But when Kremlin ruined our business model, we cried for help and we, sa we said to our audience, guys, we have nothing but you. You are the all we have now. Please help us save Medusa. And uh, we organized one of the most successful crowdfunding campaign in Russian media history because 177,000 people supported us financially. And we replaced all our advertising revenue with crowdfunding. But then the war started and Western financial sanctions were imposed. So... <laughs> For the second time in the one year, we lost our income, our uh, revenue, because uh, nobody uh, from Russia could transfer money to Latvia. So we refocus, reshape our crowdfunding campaign, asking our Western readers, we have English version uh, of Medusa, and we ask our English readers to replace our crowdfunder, our donors, and to allow us to spread independent information to Russian audience. And now we filled more than 70% of our previous income. So unfortunately, we have no business model at all, actually. And now, in fact, we are non-profit, non-commercial organization. Well, but you, you are sort of, especially if one takes into account the, the hurdles that you had to overcome, you're thriving uh, and you're a two-way conduit of uh, news and information both into Russia and from Russia to the West. I mean, that is a remarkable achievement uh, under the circumstances. And uh, I, I can imagine how valuable you are to... Uh, you're, I, I can say you're valuable to me as an English language subscriber. Thank you. Galina, this must give you a sort of a special set of insights into something that is very, very difficult for Westerners to, and Americans in particular, to really mm -hmm. understand. And that's 
uh, you know, the questions of Russian public opinion uh, about the war, about Vladimir Putin, uh, about relations with, you know, the, the list is almost endless. Um, can you sort of begin to guide us through that issue, uh, at least as best you understand it? You know, it's uh, the most vital question for me personally, because every time when I talk to my Western colleagues or to my Western readers or subscribers, every time they ask this, the biggest question, how is it possible that Russian society and Russian readers are so supportive to the war and uh, uh, so supportive to Mr. Putin? But actually, first of all, uh, we never tried to divide our audience. We are broadcasting for all people inside and outside Russia. Uh, but at the same time, none of my Western colleagues could imagine the state of fear inside Russia. According to the new laws that were imposed at the end of the year and at the beginning of this year, for example, me and my co-founder, editor-in-chief of Medoza Ivan Kopakov, we could be criminals under more than 15 laws. We could be labeled as an extremist, as an undesirable organization, as spreading fakes, as uh, uh, state treason, as cooperation with Western organizations without informing Russian authorities. And Western people could hardly imagine this state of fear because you could be prosecuted even for the link to Medusa's content. You could be fined, punished, or put behind bars from two up to 15 years in prison. So speaking about support of Vladimir Putin, you, uh, we should, we must put on mind this fear that is spreading all over the whole environment. Uh, the whole uh, everyday life is full of this fear, uh, first. And second, you know, uh, Russia now is a tyranny, actually. Uh, uh, and in these circumstances, in the conditions of uh, military censorship, uh, you could not conduct any polls, any opinion polls. Uh, second. And the third, most of these polls <clears throat> are conducted by phone or personally. Just imagine somebody is knocking to your door. You open and there is policemen and there is two officials and they know your address, your name, your apartment, your family, and they say, do you support Mr. Putin? For sure. You say yes and just close the door as soon as possible. So it's not truthful. It's not reliable information about this opinion. We uh, managed to obtain this secret closed Kremlin poll that was conducted but by special bureau, especially for Kremlin administration. 
And even this poll now shows us that the support of the war are descending dramatically. Even according to these polls, less than half of the members of the poll support the war or uh, support Mr. Putin. Uh, and the last, uh, I, I would like to say that this war, and you know that even this word, a war, is forbidden in Russia. They ordered to stay publicly only special military operation. Even during these repress, uh, repressive efforts, this war is the first event in my professional life when the real anti-war movement started was born in Russia. And uh, especially, I, I am very proud that the mothers of this anti-war movement were feminist activists from Russia. Uh, you know, one more fact. Since the full-scale war started, Ukrainian authorities, and it's totally understandable and explainable, they banned Russian male journalists from entering the country. If you are a male journalist and you have Russian passport, you could never obtain visa or border trans transfer permit. And all Medusas and all independent media readers, they see this war through the eyes of female journalists, through the women's eyes. You know, only women, only female journalists are allowed, were allowed to enter Ukraine and to report from the war field. You know, so at the one side, Russian journalists, female journalists are covering the war from the battlefield. And from the other side, Russian women are protesting against war, and they were the mothers of an anti-war movement in Russia, and it's for the very first time. I wonder if we could stay for a few more minutes on the subject of Russia and what's happening inside of Russia. Uh, you are a hard-nosed journalist, you deal with facts, you have reporters on the ground. Meanwhile, most of us in the West are you know, running on rumors most of the time, right? There are rumors of a second wave of mobilization coming. There are rumors about Putin's health supposedly deteriorating. There are rumors people sort of pick up on, on various telegram channels about infighting within the Kremlin and different factions that might be emerging. So, so I wonder if you could offer any insights into and any facts that you are aware of that could inform our speculation about where the politics of the war is headed inside of Russia. I could uh, uh, maybe top on the three major points. First, uh, concerning Putin and so-called house of the war, uh, there are Kremlin authorities are not so homogenic. They are divided. And it seems to me that now uh, neither uh, hawks nor doves, they are not satisfied with, with Putin. Speaking about his health, I just do not want to speculate on this topic, but according to our sources, in every trip, there are nine therapists who are following him on everyday mm -hmm. basis. 
So uh, nine doctors are surrounding Putin every day. Uh, but uh, the most awful thing that his state of mind is questionable because he looks like came out of the blue. He knows nothing. Um, his speeches are not based on facts. It's some kind of very dangerous fantasies, some kind of uh, sick mind. Maybe it's not very polite, but it seems to me that it's obvious, even for the closest circle, that he is so outdated, he is so badly informed, and he is so full of these mad ideas. So uh, it's uh, the first. The uh, second, speaking about uh, the situation uh, inside Russia, I talk with the Pavel Chikov. He is head of NGO called Agora, and he is a human rights defender, and he is a lawyer. And um, the lawyer of this, uh, the lawyers of this NGO, they provided support and defense for all human rights defenders and activists. And according to him, every day of this war, new criminal case, at least one, opens in Russia. So authorities every day open criminal case against anti-war activists. So now we have more than 300 days of war so we have more than 300 criminal cases against activists. And I did not mention administrative cases. We have special bot who are following and searching these administrative cases. Not less than 10 cases every day against anti-war protests or expressions. So I have no right to say that most of the Russians support this war or this invasion. But at the same time, those of Russians who are fully involved in Russian state TV propaganda, they are totally under this idea of great Russian empire, and all these brutal and senseless, uh, stupid thoughts that, uh, that were, were put in their minds by state TV. Unfortunately, and this is one of my, mm, not favorite, but one of my points, that uh, Russian state TV are managed by very talented even genius people, but they are evil genius. You know, at the same time, when uh, if we uh, took a look at the numbers, the uh, audience of first channel, state TV channel, and state TV channel called Russia and Russia 24, the numbers are declining at the same time. So it's some kind of unstable situation and it's worsening for Putin, not for anti-war activists because the rumors of new wave of mobilization may make people very angry because one of the main thoughts of Putin propaganda was nothing happened. The life is the same. Russia is defending yourself but we 
uh, we do all uh, we could to uh, stab- stabilize uh, the situation. But now they've got more than 300,000 men from their houses, from their wives and kids uh, in the first wave of mobilization. And now rumors of the second wave of, uh, of mobilization show that uh, this war would come to every door. And it seems to me that that's the main uh, the main trigger for the changing of the situation inside Russia. Galina, I wonder if I could add, there's another sort of uh, character or personality who's been getting a lot of attention in the Western press over the last months. Uh, I speak of Evgeny Prigozhin, and the, the head of the Wagner mercenary group. What are we to make of him? What do your sources uh, say and what's your view? Uh, you know, we have uh, very close connections. <laughs> <laughs> he declared our investigator, journalist Lily Parba, his personal enemy. Congratulations. She investigated, that, she investigated his activities in Africa. She investigated his activities in so-called movie business or cinema business. Uh, he's financing uh, these, uh, I'm sorry, shitty films uh, a- about Russian heroes in Syria and Africa. Uh, and uh, she investigated some activities in Ukraine. And he filled um, and he wrote special letter to General Prosecutor Office to open criminal case against her and against editor-in-chief and me as a founder and all Medusa and to label us and as an extremist organization. So, uh, you know, the main, the main threat is not Prigozhin himself, but this situation when state violence that we some, sometimes sometimes ago, agree to transfer to the state, state violence, come to the hands of real criminal boss. He's crime boss. And now he is in charge of state violence, so-called state violence, or a- anything of this. And there is a direct breaking of laws. He's mercenaries, mercenaries. I mean, it's violence used for state ends. Yeah. But the organization is not, at least, does not appear to be a, a state organization. This seems so out of the ordinary, to put it mildly, uh, for Russia. Uh, I mean, that, at least to me, that, you know, beyond the, the sort of um, Bond villain character that uh, he is. Yeah. Uh, is, is kind of a new development. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of push you on how we should understand the relationship between the Prigozhin organization and the government. If I can just maybe add one little thing to that as a, as a sort of hypothesis to consider, which I would love to hear from you, but what you think about that, which is, which is that the sort of standard the political science explanation for why paramilitaries exist and why they might be powerful in dictatorships is to prevent the risk of a military coup. Right. That 
that that that it is in Putin's interest to have these sort of competing power centers to keep each other in check. Is that what's going on, or is there something else as well? Uh, you know, uh, um, Putin does not like any boundaries, but he he used to say that everything should be put in the frame of law, but it's just a words. He does not like to be in some kind of borders in some kind he he doesn't like to be framed and even uh speaking with the army officials or fsb officials he has to be framed he has to follow the rules of connections between those different powers and prigozhin make uh, uh putin feel himself almighty. There is no boundaries. There is no obligations. He could do whatever he wants to. And this is the trick, that everything is allowed. Putin uh, feel himself free speaking with Prigozhin. There is no obligations. There is no frames. There is no borders. And this is the trick that Prigozhin catched Putin's mind. There is no rule book according to which the Wagner group operates. Absolutely. No rule book, no rules at all. Rules of sort of civilized warfare that they have to follow. I'm sorry to so be so obsessive about this, but there's a downside in giving, you know, an obviously undisciplined, not very competent military force so much leeway, so much freedom, I mean, not only internationally, although, you know, if, if there ever are war crimes trials, uh, I'm sure that this will be a central uh, issue. But I would, I would think domestically, too. Um, I, I don't know what kind of profile he had previously, other than being Putin's caterer. <laughs> um, but you know, especially in the context of a military defeat, um, having a sort of very nationalist, uh, hardcore alternative figure would seem to be kind of a risky, risky play for for Putin. I mean, uh, he's got to make sure that he's got Prokhorov on a tight leash. I would think. You know, uh, I used to say that according to my, from my perspective, Putin like a poker player. He raised stakes as high as possible. And he, uh, the, uh, this makes his blood uh, drive faster. <laughs> you know, he like a, po- a, lo- a poker player. Uh, and at the same time, it seems to me that Putin's... Uh, uh, maybe he could not imagine that Prigozhin dare uh, could dare to take power from him. He uh, thinks that Prigozhin is his puppet uh, or pet or something like this. And at the same time, Putin is absolutely sure that if Prigozhin cross the red line, FSB. With a great pleasure, get rid of. Oh, I really enjoy that one. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, the same situation is with the Ramzan Kadyrov. Oh, there's another uh, very charming fellow. 
Galina, one thing we've been asking our guests lately has been to kind of look forward to the coming year. And the, this week's headlines in particular seem to suggest uh, that the United States and um, Ukraine's European allies understand that they need to accelerate the pace of providing armaments to the Ukrainian army in the hopes that coming campaigns can be uh, successful in the way that the the Kharkiv counteroffensive was. What effect do you think that might have uh, on Russian public opinion and your listeners? You know, it's a very complicated situation. Those of our readers who share our beliefs and our point of view, they for sure decided... Uh, They've already decided. They will, decide they will, uh, will be very uh, satisfied uh, with uh, this situation because Putin's victory uh, could mean the defeat of all democratic institutions all across the Europe and it's a total catastrophic events could be. But at the same time, those people who are more or less in doubt or who are under the influence of Russian propaganda, they could see uh, the proof of their ideas that it's not the war between Russia and Ukraine, it's the war between Russia and NATO. So uh, this support um, uh, means for them that Putin was right, that it's NATO uh, that but, is fighting. So Putin is, is right if he wins and right if he loses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. Uh, I um, uh, forget to, uh, to add that, for example, Medoza has up to now, now up to 15 million, and at least more than half of them are totally against the war, and they are dreaming of Ukraine victory and Putin's defeat. So we could say that, yes, for sure, there are a lot of war supporters uh, in, in Russia, but they are not in majority, first. And second, the situation when Putin will win everybody, everybody, even war supporters, realized that it will be the end of the world as they know it. If I can um, ask a question, perhaps more specifically on your on your work and on the work of similar media organizations and exiled uh, exiled Russians trying to influence what's happening in in, in Russia. Early in December, uh, Latvian authorities revoked the license of mm -hmm. of TV Dost, TV Rain, which is a friendly. Yeah. Uh, media organization to to yours following a broadcast in which one of the hosts uh, suggested that they were helping the ser Russian servicemen operating in in Ukraine. So, so I wonder, um, uh, A, what you think of this episode and B, um, how the West and say Latvian authorities and, and, and other sort of policymakers should think about you know things that that would be helpful and, and and that includes both things to do and things not to do when it when it comes to 
working with with, 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 with your media organizations, taking obviously into account, I mean, the difficulty of the subject. I mean, you are based in Latvia, uh, and and the relationship yeah. that, that that Baltic states have with their Russian-speaking minority is 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 a very complicated and, and sort of sensitive one. So, so how should you know how should these three governments navigate these situations, and how should people in the West think about that? Uh, we've followed uh, this uh, scandal or uh, this situation from the very beginning. And after uh, Latvian authorities revoked the license of TV Rain, we published a statement and more than 130 media organizations from uh, inside Russia or in exile uh, supported this uh, statement, this editorial that we wrote in support of TV Rain. I am absolutely sure that every media in this part of universe <laughs> makes huge, crucial mistakes. But it's not the point. We are just humans. Everybody could make mistake. And even this mistake is very, very hard. But the reaction was so overwhelmed, was so sharp, and it seems to me it's not very wise. I'm totally against any bans, even Russia Today. I'm against banning any media. If you want to defeat Russia Today, please do the best content. Try to be better than them. Try to grab attention of your audience. Uh, respect your audience. Fight for your audience. Banning is not the solution. The same with TV Rain. Maybe they made great mistakes, but first, they brought their apologies. Second, they tried to mitigate this situation and third of course i understand deeply the situation in in latvia is very hard they have big border with russia they have very aggressive uh, neighbor and they are full of scare but scare is very bad helper in this crisis situation it was not wise decision uh, and it seems to me that TV Rain learned this lesson, but I'm not so sure that Latvian government learned this lesson uh, as well, unfortunately. Um, Galina, we've had kept you for quite a while, but if you could expand on this last discussion a, a bit to help us understand uh, what I'll just call the Russian emigre community, um, if it, you can even call it a single community. Obviously, there are people such as yourself who are real protesters and dissidents against the regime. Uh, there are people who have fled Russia just out of desire not to be drafted and, uh, you know, for their own personal safety and so on. As, as you noted, there hasn't been what you would call uh, a consistent uh, Western response, uh, to put it mildly. I'm not trying to judge any of this, but 
again, it's, it's an issue that we can probably use greater insight and understanding about. So maybe that would be a good way to sort of conclude with a very broad discussion. My point is very simple. Those people who escape mobilization or who left Russia uh, actually doesn't matter at all when they did it because those who avoided mobilization, it's very simple. They just did not want to be murderers. They just not want to kill people. And this is valuable. It's very valuable uh, movement. And those, for example, Latvian politicians said, those who fled Russia at the start of the war, we are welcoming it. And those who are who uh, escaped Russia after mobilization, they are not very welcome because uh, uh, they care just about themselves, but they did not took uh, arms, took rifles in their hand. They not actually do not want to kill people. This is valuable asset. And it seems to me that uh, speaking about Russian community uh, here in Latvia and in Berlin, uh, for example, I'm very familiar with those who left Russia this year. They are young, active, creative, and financially more or less, uh, more or less sustainable. They decided to start from the scratch their lives. They just do not want to be connected with terrorist state, with insane leader. They just do not want to be fascists or Nazis or any kind of uh, such horrible things. They just do not want to be connected with this. So it seems to me that those countries, European countries, who are welcoming them, they are very wise. It's a good investment because those creative people or so-called creative class of people in Russia, they are 30 plus, uh, they used to work in Russia in absolute toxic environment. But even in this environment, they were more or less successful. They tried to do their best. So they could bring to Europe new ideas, new uh, uh, working spaces, their energy, and they are very loyal to Western values, like a democracy values. So it seems to me that it's not very wise uh, to say them, if you are um, uh, uh, you left Russia only in autumn, you are not very welcome. For example, uh, I know thousands of people who are literally trapped in Russia. For example, one of my friends, uh, it's very common situation. She's 40 plus and she uh, has good position in charity. But she said, guys, I have three seniors, 80 plus people. I could not leave them alone. I just want to take care of them. And it's my, um, it's, it's mandatory for me. I just could not leave my oldies 
to this Putin regime. And there are millions of people, even inside Russia, who are trapped and locked in this country. But it seems to me, uh, from my perspective, Medusa and me by myself and my journalist, we are trying to show them that they are not alone. We are with you. And uh, they are not just left with this uh, police or FSB or so-called Silaviks. Uh, so it seems to me it's, it's very important to understand that even inside Russia, there are millions of people who desperately need support. But, you know, it's very common uh, phrase, but almost all my friends who were pushed outside Russia, who had to leave Russia uh, under threat of criminal prosecution, uh, journalists, activists, they when uh, they talk about their difficulties, every time they said, it means nothing in, compa in comparison with Ukrainians. Uh, it doesn't matter at all. Yes, it's very hard to live. It's very hard to live behind uh, our homeland and our houses. And we are downgraded and it's some kind of downshifting. But it means nothing. We just want to work and to start new life. But please, please focus on Ukrainians because they are suffering. They are the real victims. We are uh, we are survivors and we will try, but Ukrainians are the real victims. Almost all of my friends and all of my colleagues who left Russia, they put special attention to these facts that Ukrainians are real victims, not us. George Matimchenko, thank you so much. We should also say that Galina is a recipient of uh, the International Press Freedom Award by the Committee to Protect Journalists based in New York City. Uh, congratulations on that. That was awarded to you last year. Thank you. From Valver Rohaj. And me, Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes for more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.